Hi there, I'm Alex Usher, and this is Higher Education Strategy Associates, one podcast to start your day. It starts off with this very high-tech synthosequency type thing, like this. That's the news. morning everybody or good afternoon or good evening whatever time of day you happen to be tuning into this podcast uh, today we're talking about internationalization at Canadian universities and colleges and with me I have three guests uh, Andrew Ness Dean International at Humber College Nancy Johnson an independent consultant and former vice provost of students and international at Simon Fraser University and from here in Toronto at Higher Education Strategy Associates, Michael Savage, who's our manager of international markets and mobility. Good morning, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi, happy to be here. Great. So I'm just going to start things off with a, a really simple question. Andrew, you had a member of your staff uh, go off on a around the world ocean vacation maybe 10 years ago, and they just got back. What do you tell them about what's changed? Oh, thanks, Alex. That's a fantastic question. So I think the first comment I would make is we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that we've really changed in three fundamental ways, in scale, in scope, and I would say in rigor. So what do I mean? We've seen a massive shift in demand at Humber from primarily domestic enrollment to international students really filling what we we would consider excess capacity. Uh, we haven't grown our aggregate enrollment uh, for a number of reasons, but we've seen that proportion shift significantly. We've also seen the diversity grow at Humber, which has been interesting not only on our own campus, but in terms of our outbound students, where we have dozens of international students now looking for study abroad opportunities and looking for international work integrated learning, which is different than what we would have seen 10 years ago. And the rigor comment uh, I would use is, it, uh, I, I meant the rigor comment that I made refers to the approach we've taken in terms of expectations for study abroad and academic partnerships. So more expectations on preparation, on risk mitigation, outcomes, and provision of academic credit. So significant change in that 10-year period. Nancy, does that sound right to you from the West Coast? Similar perspective? Yeah, kind of. Um, we've always had a strong demand, as you know, from international students. It's never been an issue. Simon Fraser's been up in the 20 percentile far before COVID. And of course, we are a receiving immigration community and the rest of our students that we draw domestically. In fact, 90 percent of the SFU students are are living and already studying within a spit of the hill, which is interesting. And we'll talk a bit more about that, I think, later, Alex, with Pathways. But I would agree, and I really applaud and welcome the rigor that you reference, Andrew, because it's been something that's been a little bit lacking as we've rushed to focus entirely on recruitment in the past. I'm very happy to see that we're looking at the longer trajectory of international students when we bring them here, or our own students when we send them internationally. And, and really paying attention to the outcomes and the impacts and the learning piece, uh, which sometimes gets lost in the rush to bring bring people to campus or send them off campus. Right. Michael, any thoughts? I would completely concur with Andrew's uh, three points. And I think maybe this is just the consultant in me speaking, but I think the scale is probably the most noticeable. And I would put that in the context of 
stagnant uh, provincial funding, for example. So international students have become a big business for a lot of institutions. And that seems to be the major driving force behind a lot of these changes. Mm -hmm. I have to say, it, it's striking to me the extent to which the uh, the exchange rate for the rupee has become a sort of a strategic issue for a lot of institutions in this country. You know, that, you wouldn't have thought that making it into the discussion at, at board level uh, at some places, but it is now just because that, that they... I think in particular it's Ontario colleges, not not all of them, but but some of them, um, and some other parts of the country, like uh, Cape Breton University, that's a uh, become a real thing. Um, uh, but let me ask you, you know, the question about uh, international students and how we're how they're treated once they're at institutions, because obviously this has been an issue uh, recently. We've seen the, the Fifth Estate uh, report, which I think a lot of people saw and is maybe influencing or starting to influence a lot of uh, minds around international students. Uh, what do you think, Nancy? Like, how how well do we meet international students' need and where could we be better? Well, <laughs> we can always be better for all of our students, of course. And I, I think the answer, and I hate to say it's qualified, it depends on the pathway that brings them here. And there are many different pathways. People probably think the most common one we think of is the greedy agent pushing people over to Canada to, to meet the Canadian uh, enrichment, which could be taken in many ways of the education system. But uh, I'm well familiar with the pathway program that brings them here through uh, a college that's affiliated with the university, in our case, Simon Fraser, um, that has them here for two years taking university transfer courses taught by our own faculty that ensures when they get to our uh, transfer to SFU, they're already going to succeed. And in fact, the data of the last 15 years shows us that they are succeeding at the same or, or better rates than our domestic counterparts. But that wasn't always the case. Uh, and uh, Simon had to look at itself about 10 years ago, we did a massive study that compared new immigrants with uh, domestic students, with international students and looked at student success, retention, ac academic um, success, completion, and they were lagging way behind. And so the university had to take some really, some really intentional actions to improve the experience of those students, Alex. And, and we did, and not just service and program actions, policy actions. We had to change yeah. the nature of the university. Now, am I right in thinking, uh, SFU, uh, you have, a, have had an agreement with Navitas for quite some time, if I'm not mistaken. So is this, is this what came out of that uh, that survey? Is, that's, well, no, the, that, those were kind of happening concurrently. And there was a lot of discussion uh, at the university whether these kinds of agreements were good. And so we knew we had to uh, really pay attention to the academic rigor. Every one of those courses at our Navitas College is monitored semesterly compared with how that course is taught at the university and how they succeed and when there's a problem we're on it so uh in a way navitas kind of made us better not just enriching our coffers as some people would like to point out but i think actually enriching the student experience for everyone and and some of the changes that were made at navitas carried over to sfu so there was some nice reciprocity there interesting andrew sorry i think i cut you off there no not at all no thanks Alex. nancy gosh uh, what you're saying resonates uh, similar to us, and you as much as said a student is a student. So you know what we're seeing in terms of that question of how they're treated, the the challenges that are manifesting in domestic student population, whether it's mental health challenges or anxiety or financial pressures, manifest in our international student population. I do look at our retention and graduation rates as as somewhat of a marker to say how are they being treated and how are they doing. 
we're graduating international students at a rate, the re most recent rate was 88.9%, persistence rates 91%, the students are successful. Wow. Yeah, they're, those are high number numbers out, and I'm not sure they're exceptional. If we talk to colleagues, I think you'd see, so that's positive, but that also says we have the right inputs in terms of academic qualifications and in terms of admissions. We're also, and Nancy intimated this as well, we're monitoring data. And what I mean by that is we look at the international uh, health insurance usage data to adjust coverage to better serve our international student population based on um, what their specific needs are. But we're also thinking not only the input, but we're thinking what's happening after they graduate. And International Graduate School at Humber that we launched uh, two years ago is a good example where we have a facility um, in downtown Toronto, but we've integrated in a community connector hub, integrated in uh, uh, very specific career connections and career supports. So it's more wraparound employability skills in addition to the academic outcomes. I think that's a great point, Andrew, but I mean, it's not all rosy uh, either. Um, these students use, in our cases, disproportionately high uh, needs for counseling, mental health supports, financial aid. I mean, the change in, in government to allow international students to work more that's recently occurred is, a, a, I think, a fantastic thing for that, that group of students. But, you know, fortunately, the service providers that many of us use have, have kind of uh, ponied up for this. And we, we now sign on to a mental health service. It's available 24-7. Seven of the, the languages most spoken at SFU, are counselors are available. Their language and culture uh, relevant and sensitive, and they're accessible from anywhere in the world. And, and that's through our, our Canadian service provider of, of, of health insurance. So I think slowly this sector is responding, uh, but I think it's fair to say that uh, international students still have, I think, much greater challenges. Yes, a student is a student, and anything we do that helps an international student that's struggling will help a domestic student that's struggling, but they have some unique needs, not the least of which is around employability. Um, RBC uh, Will Group did a two-year-long research study on the ways in which employers view inter the hiring of students from international pathways is the name of the study published in the International Journal for Work Integrated Learning. And um, it, there, there's a lot of conscious and unconscious bias out there still in, in that sector. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and actually, thanks, Nancy. Um, we subscribe to the same service, so I'm glad you referenced it in terms of the mental health support. So that that's terrific. Uh, you did what you said actually um, made me think of the connection and the intersection and the I would say more consciousness around the connection between academic and immigration policies, where they've often been really at cross purposes. Uh, sometimes our academic colleagues with um, all good intentions struggle to think, well, how, how does this impact uh, my ability to, to administer the policies that we have? And I, there, I would say there's a far greater understanding uh, and greater appreciation and consideration without any, which is really important, without any diminution of academic standards, none. Uh, that's, but we're thinking about the different consequences that arise while upholding the academic standards, mm -hmm. which I'm sure is the case elsewhere as well. Yeah. Um, 
Let me ask a question here about about sources, because I think one of the things that's really changed is we were a country for a long time uh, that was looked more diversified than, say, Australia and New Zealand did in terms of their their student body. Yes, China was a big deal, but then there was a whole bunch of countries that gave us the you know that second tier, and there's Korea and there's Hong Kong. I'm not sure if Hong Kong and China are still considered separate anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, and now all of a sudden we look a lot like Australia because we are now coming up on about 85% China and India and, and nobody else anywhere close. What happened and why? Michael, any thoughts? Well, I, I think the, the easiest answer here is that it frankly depends on what type of institution is causing this. I mean, there, there are national trends and it's clear that Canada is a national player. So we're in the same markets as your New Zealand's, Australia's, uh, the UK. So we're, we're competing for the same sort of students. And I, I think it speaks to the fact that we kind of have two kind of main pathways here. Uh, colleges and polytechnics are especially well-primed to get students who are interested in immigration, for example, uh, future work opportunities. This is why Will has already come up in the context of, of these types of institutions. So that's gonna get you a very kind of immigration focused market, which you know is going to be your places like India. In other cases, prestige is what's drawing people. And that's, that's a case for other major destinations. For example, certainly the UK has prestigious institutions. The United States has prestigious institutions. And these the institutions, the major kind of Western receiving countries all have institutions with very similar characteristics. You know, we can we can debate the differences between the English system, the American system, the Canadian system, the Australian system, but at their core, they're very, very similar institutions that are likely to attract a similar type of student, and they offer a very similar value proposition. So I, I think our, our similarities between these countries define us far more than our differences. And I think that's reflected in kind of the convergence of these international markets. Interesting, Nancy? Well, I think that's that's true, but I think there are some differences that Canada has played on in the past, safety uh, being one of them. And also uh, because we've had some really ugly things, well, everywhere, but, but particularly Australia went through a spate of it, as did Britain, certainly more than Canada. Uh, but also in the case of the West Coast anyway, there are large diaspora communities here already. This is attractive, in our case, from Hong Kong, China, Korea, Persia, uh, which we haven't mentioned, but yeah, it was much smaller. But mm -hmm. so there are safe places to land. And we have certainly found uh, at SFU that uh, studying abroad is kind of a family decision. And if the first kid to go has a wonderful experience, you're going to get uh, brothers and sisters and cousins, and then they're going to buy a house here, and then <laughs> they're going to do the immigration path post. And so um, I think there's that sort of human side of it that we can't forget when people are making decisions. They they are largely influenced uh, through previous experience. Andrew? Uh, you know, I go back to the scale comment. If you think of the scale of how we increase, there's really very, very few places outside of China and India that can provide us the scale in terms of the capacity we've added. Again, I have an Ontario college-centric view of things, but we've added enormous scale. But I would also say, Alex, and, and you've referenced the UK, and UK access, uh, there's an access issue in terms of study permit approval rates. The Standing Committee on Immigration identified this most recently, where we have enormous inbound interest from Nigeria, for instance, and we can't get them into the country. They're academically qualified. They would be superb students, yet there's a challenge there. I do think we could have uh, perhaps a different distribution, not massively so, but appreciably so, 
were we to have uh, a little bit more um, equity in terms of some of that access that comes across the rider CC. Yeah, I'll come back to the policy aspect in a second, but I do want to uh, come to the issue. Michael, I know you've worked on this before, but you know there is the question of uh, everybody wants to diversify, right? But where where to diversify to? Where are the markets that we're not uh, tapping? And you know, Michael, you said we're, we're there's a lot of overlap between us and uh, I guess the the old white Commonwealth. Um, where is the? Are there? Are are people? chasing a, a chimera when they say they want to diversify or is, is it just that so much of the world is India and China that that's where we're going to get our students well pre prepare for probably like the least uh least comforting answer or the least welcome answer you know it it, it's, it depends is my kind of argument here but there's kind of no one market for diversification just as there is no one institution and I'm actually going to bring us back to one of Nancy's points that I find to be kind of key which is just how much easier it is to recruit students from a specific destination when there's already a diasporic population in the community that your institution serves there's a reason that uh, institutions in Brampton have such an easy, relatively easy time attracting students from India, for example. There are lots of communities in Canada with a large Filipino diaspora. They have an easier time getting Filipino students. Uh, where it gets difficult, though, is that it, we can't necessarily speak of it, this is this country's market, it wants this. But we can definitely break things down into institution type, uh, into specific programs, for example. So if we're talking about prestige-based markets, well, maybe Iran is one. But maybe Iran is just a market for, say, business programs and medical schools, for example, and not other things. So diversification, in my mind, really speaks to a need to develop uh, faculty and, in some case, cases, department-specific strategies, for example. There's not sort of a one-size-fits-all student for your institution. Uh, I, I think the, the more specific, the more we can drill down into specific pieces of data, specific pieces of trends, the more likely you are to be able to diversify, though there is no kind of easy solution to diversifying our, our source countries. You know what I'd like to see in that diversification discussion? It's really clear why we don't want all our eggs in one financial basket. I get the financial argument, but I've heard much less discourse among senior management about why do we want to diversify beyond that experientially, academically, intellectually, as a community? And, and if we knew uh, the answer to that, we would be able to choose countries by the ways in which they align with those particular kind of higher level needs. I totally get the financial argument, but I think it's so overweighs and everyone just takes it as a as a, a given that diversification is good, but if it's not aligned with the core values and the core activities of your institution, I think at some point there, the tension is going to get really difficult. Mm. Andrew? Diversification, I think, is a matter of degree. The scales that some of us are operating, that you're really moving in single percentage points, and it really depends on how you measure that. Uh, uh, I, I do think that's the challenge. So setting the expectations around what what that diversity looks like and how it will manifest uh, in terms of your aggregate goals, uh, and that's again with all with added capacity. I think that's a challenge. I, Michael really hit on something that I find um, I, really compelling, and that is faculty specific goals. So how fine grained are the enrollment goals? Is it one bucket and whoever comes across the transom first is admitted? Or are we really being much more deliberate to say we're using a stratified approach where there's X coming from this region and Y coming from this region? And to my mind, that's where we need to move. It's really putting action against the this um, 
goal of diversity in order to really maintain some degree of uh, differentiation because the cycles are so heterogeneous. They're coming into the funnels at different points. They have different, and for very good reason. Uh, and so how is it that, that we can actually use our systems to ensure that we meet the diversity goal? And this is, I'm talking about pre-application, really looking at this in, in a much more systematic way and re-engineer the process to allow for that. That's what something that strikes me. It's a lot easier for big institutions to do than small institutions in the sense that, uh, you know, it needs, it requires a certain amount of um, specialization and sophistication, uh, both at the faculty level and at the level of the, you know, the recruitment office, the international office uh, to make, uh, to make that work. Let me turn the conversation a little bit to uh, something that's been under the uh, microscope in a few communities across the country, and that is how international students are affecting housing. Um, to me, this is a really big one uh, because, I, I mean, obviously, you know, universities and colleges didn't cause the long-term slowdown in construction of new houses, um, but in some communities, they have been very uh, active in bringing in a lot of short-term uh, people requiring short-term housing. Um, and people say, well, you know, what is it? just another extra thousand students? I'm like, well, actually, you think about the number of students at SFU, for instance, who live with their parents, actually a thousand requiring short-term housing, that's a really big number for Burnaby, right? Like that's, a, uh, you know, or whatever part of Toronto they're scattered, or Vancouver they're scattered over. Um, so I guess my question, and, and what that's doing, it's not just that it's causing a heartache to students or international students specifically, although clearly that's, you know, finding them housing is a problem. It's raising prices, not just for students, but for uh, local popula uh, populations and particularly local low-income populations. It's like a tax that institutions are imposing on their communities, and it's not doing the system any favors. Let's put it that way. I think we're, we're losing allies as a sector because of some of this. So, what can institutions do about this kind of thing? What's the, how, how bad could this get? How, how bad could the, the, the loss of prestige or, or allies get? And what can we do about it? Well, one of the things that we've done is really bumped up our residents in housing. We've committed to a place for every single FIC student, not even SFU student, but FIC student in their first and second years. And FIC is your transfer. That is the Fraser International College. That's our Navitas partner um, for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's a very tight residential uh, housing, you know, uh, problems exist here anyway. But secondly, it's, it's for that transition and that, that sort of uh, experience of, of gaining community. I mean, our multi-faith center, residence and housing and international services for students are three main student service uh, sectors that provide such a landing place for most of our international students. Unlike Canadian students, in fact, I, I'm always going to argue that the faith-based programs and services are more important to the international students we bring in. It's the first place they will go, whereas the Canadian students will <laughs> head over to counseling and, and, and health because they understand that's, that's their safe place. But uh, anyway, residence and housing being first and foremost. And then there's sort of an interesting little offshoot to what you say, Alex. Like, while it does sort of uh, make us maybe uh, unhappy partners in, in sort of the accessibility for non-students, there's a huge business in people renting out their suites in bringing in international students, particularly the kids on the high school pathway. And so a lot of people are helping pay their own mortgages 
by hosting these students and bringing them into their families. So, it, you know, there's always two sides to everything. Yeah, no, it's the Airbnb argument, right? It's, uh, it can, it, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very similar. Andrew? You know, this is, we are always looking for housing options for our students. And we understand that housing costs is just going up and up. Availability, of course, is a challenge, and that's really related to what's happening in the price. And where this question led me to is thinking, how transparent and how deliberate are we saying to students, this is the amount it's going to cost you to live here? And I, I come back at this a number of times, a number of conversations in Ontario over the past uh, year to say, we are going to be really forthright to say, this is what it's going to cost. And frankly, do not come unless you are prepared to bear the cost. It's not healthy for you. It's, it's not that we don't want willing students, but it's, it's expensive and we appreciate that it's expensive and we want to be upfront with you to say, this is what it will cost. Come in expecting that you'll be able to make your tuition money in, in working off campus is just not a reasonable approach. So to my mind, that is, that's an important component to this. Michael, I just wanted your thoughts on the, on the housing issue before we step away completely. Certainly. Well, I, I think there's no one silver bullet here. Uh, I, I think universities and colleges do have a responsibility to perhaps provide a little more on-campus housing than they currently do. They should prioritize the expansion of that, though that's not likely to bring returns for a good long while. I think one of the things that we, we face is that this is an issue that's much larger than just the sector. So the sector can be an important voice in lobbying for more affordable housing. It should be a champion of more opportunities, more housing opportunities for everyone in this country here, but it alone is not going to be able to, to solve the problem. But if it's seen as a, a helpful ally, I think that will go a long way. Yeah, and again, so that notion of allies and who you're allying within the community that's, and, and therefore who's going to be allies with you is really important. One example of that that I think is really interesting is that Cape Breton University, the famous Cape Breton University with all its uh, international students, they have uh, just put up a, a big proposal for a lot of, of not just student housing, but low-income housing. So I think it's about 700 units that they're putting uh now, admittedly, on an old environmental site, if I'm not mistaken, or no, it's it's near. It's sorry, it's not on the flats. It's near the flats, but it's uh, that. They sounds to me like they're getting close to permission to, to to get going on that. And while it's not enough to capture the whole big increase of the last few years, it does. It uh, uh, there is some stuff that's specially set aside for the community, which I think is uh, is pretty interesting. Let me focus. Let me do. Uh, you know, before we wrap up, I want one piece of inside baseball because um, I think this is this is a question that a lot of people have um in the international student business and it's what's the how do you right size your international services how do you fund your international services i mean one of the things about you know student services or the bookstore or whatever is you know you, you've had years to figure out how to fund those things um international you got money fl floating in in many cases very quickly and you have to upsize what you're doing to match and we have no practice doing that really, right? Because it's just, it, you know, the idea that there are specialized services that need to come in, that's that's difficult. And I hear often, you know, people in international offices feeling underappreciated, saying we have to bring in all the money, but we're not getting any of the money in order to actually do what we're supposed to do. So how do you right-size an international student operation? And Michael, I know you, you've, you've done some work uh, on this with an Ontario university. So what's the, what's the answer to that, at least at, uh, at larger institutions? 
Well, you, you have to get creative with things. I, I would say that there's not a lot of creativity currently. So if we are looking at how these are currently uh, staffed and resourced, they're almost exclusively budgeted for according to kind of past precedent. This is what we gave them last year. We might give them a modest increase, maybe not. That's sort of how they look at it, regardless of other things. Now, some institutions- Regardless of how many students they get. Often. Yeah. Now, some institutions get to play around with uh, some revenue generating activities. There's a lot of really, really great summer programs and things like that that are used as revenue generators that can then be channeled back to, to services. I know uh, U University of British Columbia runs a really interesting summer school, for example, that's highly profitable and can be used to support uh, other things. It's exceptionally rare, though, for an increase in international students to automatically equal an increase in the resources provided to international student offices. I, a, a while back, I think about two years ago, did a benchmarking of most uh, U15 offices. And I think it was just the University of Calgary that had it had a funding formula whereby if international students uh, increased by X amount, uh, the funding for the unit would go up by Y amount. So it really is largely based on past precedent. Although I will say, Institutions that have been stumbling blindly in this area have still come to similar concerns. They've all sort of realized that there's a, a clear need for kind of frontline service personnel, frontline uh, immigration advising and the like. And you can sort of just chart it based on the amount of uh, staff per student. And it seems like everywhere decides that about 1500 international students equals a need for one immigration advisor. Now, nobody comes out and says this. Nobody has said, here's our actual number. But the pressures seem to be uh, oriented right around this number. So everybody sort of falls in line in the 1500 to 2000. And if you go over that, uh, the offices are just increasingly pressed and they're worried about actually kind of upholding the, the appropriate level of service. Andrew, I'm going to go to you partially because Humber teaches that course on how to advise students on or, or if the, how, where all the university advisors for immigration are yes, from. Yes, that's right. Uh, we, we did. I, I, yeah. It's no longer, it's moved oh, okay. uh, to Queens now. But, but no, I think Michael's hit on some, look, I can only speak for Humber in terms of our budget model. And we, we don't hitch our wagon to revenue. We, what we try to do is embody the academic values, including internationalization. Alex, you and I have talked about this. It, look, if we have a need at a budget point, immigration advisor, Michael, I don't know how you figured out that 1500 number, but that's pretty darn accurate. We have a need and the institutions responded and that's happened multiple times. We identify the need and it's funded, but it's part of our normal budget process. So we, we don't say, look, the revenue came from us. That's just not correct to do so. We just wouldn't do that. Um, but it, it, a part of this here, the conversation is, how are we supporting the STRAT plan, the academic plan, the digital campus plan, which I know many institutions talk about this, but really here, it's a crucial part of what our future direction is. And we really need to be um, either amplifying or exemplifying what, what the outcomes of those plans are. And then we, we're supported accordingly. And, and we're very careful to ensure that we're aligned with where the institution is going that way. And, and we're supported as a result. Nancy. Yeah, maybe I could just add, uh, while we, Michael, don't have at SFU a particular formula like that, built into the increases in tuition, we've been doing this for a while, is increased international targeted scholarships and international targeted financial aid. So there is space there for, for students in need. But, you know, I'm going to challenge us to do something bigger than that. Uh, when, uh, when I was there, I was uh, keen to change sort of the whole image of what international student services is. It's not to recreate 
regular student services in another complete silo and keep them all for their entire career over here with their international counterparts. They come here because they want a Canadian experience. And so we changed the name of our center to International Services for Students. It welcomes domestic students, international students, study abroad, field schools. It has, of course, the most important onboarding stuff. It's usually at the front end uh, for students internationally and the immigration services. But after that, where we, what we challenged was every other student service to ask itself, how does it offer its service in a particular way that meets the needs of international students? And so we began to work way more like that. And we do the same for indigeneity, disability, there are certain obvious challenges that those groups need specialized, informed, you know, counseling and, and guidance on. But really, you have to change the pond if you don't want the frogs to keep getting sick. The frogs will change a little bit, but the pond has to change too. And I think our Canadian institutions have a lot of change to do to be truly a welcoming partner to international students because we are still very, very stuck on the ways in which we offered education 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, interesting. Can I ask, because you mentioned one thing earlier, Nancy, about uh, there was one specific set of services that you thought uh, were important, which was the interfaith services. That seems to me like that would be a really big change in, in the institution or, or an inst- uh, uh, a subunit of the institution that would have to undergo quite a bit of change. Can you describe how that happened? And like, was it gradual? Was it sudden? What, how did no, it was very gradual to your point, uh, Alex, and, and the, obviously there's always faith-based activities on campuses, and the, I think the SFU wanted to kind of be hands-off and stay out of that business and let them do their thing in their own way, but it became clear that it would be better to have, somebody always would rise, a chief chaplain, or so, that wanted to coordinate activities, and the students would have some amount of intermingling. And so finally, and I think this is not uncommon across Canada, because when I actually put a full-time job in place for our center of interfaith the head of the center of interfaith i took it off of about 15 other schools calgary was out there uh, i think they were doing some stuff in windsor uh, and so we have a full-time person that as part of the student services team and so they're always there because who's looking after the desk disproportionately high i'm sorry to say for uh, international students the chaplaincy who's looking after the people that are stressed out in international services for students delivering services the chaplaincy. Where are the students going to? First and foremost, they land in their faith-based communities, at least with the with the students that we have coming to us. They're very strong faith-based people. So yeah, we now have a very good relationship with that group. They interact as part of a student services team, and they perform a lot of really important functions that are critical to, I don't want to say academic success, but human success which of course when those things start to degrade academic success is out the window so uh, I I really I think they're kind of an unspoken about uh, important foundation to uh, uh, setting up a new community and in the pond interesting well let me wrap up with this one last question Policies towards international students come at various levels right we've got some coming from the federal government we've got some coming from provincial governments sometimes accidentally, um, and sometimes, and, and of course, what's going on at the, at the, the institutional level. 
Um, and I always like to sort of say, you know, how are we doing? And it, the, the we is very, uh, you know, the we contains multitudes here. Um, but how is Canada doing on international students? What have we got right as a country about bringing international students to the, uh, here? And, and what have we got wrong in the whole system? Michael, can I start with you? Sure. I think one of the things that we've gotten right has been what we haven't done. Um, we haven't uh, em embraced the politics that completely others international students. We haven't had our own kind of Brexit moment, not that we'd have the capabilities of having a moment like that. But this this absence has really served to make the Canadian brand stronger, irrespective of any kind of strategy we have. I think uh, I'll be curious to hear everyone else's thoughts, but there are opportunities to have a more articulated international strategy. We've just been the beneficiaries of some well-timed inaction, frankly. We, we haven't gotten our own way, it's basically, yeah, okay. Uh, Nancy. Well, I, I'm thinking that I don't know if it's so much a, a federal government policy, although, as I mentioned earlier, I think they are paying more attention to things like uh, extending the ability to work off campus. Those are policies that have been very good, I think, and will be very good for international students. We've always had, this is institution dependent, but we at SFU have always had the, uh, allowed international students to work through our work integrated learning. And the federal government of policy allows for that. They get uh, the ability to do that their entire time on, in, on top of uh, working outside of that. So I think those have worked well. And, and perhaps I don't want to get too political, but I think Canada still seen to be a, a welcoming generally uh, country for new immigrants. So what we're doing on the immigration front is perceived, I think, generally by the external world as being a fairly, maybe in many people's minds, too welcoming, but a welcoming country. So that immigration policy kind of helps uh, educational recruitment, I think, just by virtue of creating this notion of a welcoming, safe uh, country with, that's very diverse. We've always had that mosaic here that the U.S. Has, has never sort of identified with. So I think those have helped a bit. Andrew? Yeah, I, the immigration policy connecting credential achievement to immigration pathway was a brilliant move however many years ago. That was 15 years ago. Uh, and we, we continue to reap rewards based on the policy. How it's enacting now in terms of the engineering of that is a story altogether different. And I think that is, uh, we, what we've done is put handcuffs on ourselves. Uh, we have a fantastic policy, but if we can't get them into the country or we're not being equitable the way we do that, uh, then it's all for naught. And Michael, I loved your comment to say, it's what we didn't do. And it's what the, or the stumbles from these other, other countries. That is true. But the ships are right-sizing in other places. Australia is the best example that I can think of right now. And it's an enormous threat to our overall opportunity. And if we can't fix these other systems, and it's one of these things, we should have fixed the roof when it wasn't raining, when it was sunny. Now it's pouring rain and we have to fix. Uh, I heard a report yesterday, 155,000 study permit backlog yet. Uh, so this is Good CBC. Lord, 155. That was CBC Radio. Huh. And, uh, you know, I, it's disheartening uh, because I, I, it's not a simple fix I appreciate, but at the same time, uh, we owe our students the ability to hear back in a timely way. Uh, so I really do hope that we'll work on that. Policy is great. Enacting it, we have some work to do. 
And so that's all the time we have for our podcast today. I'd just like to thank our guests, Michael Savage, Manager of International Markets and Mobility here at Higher Education Strategy Associates, Nancy Johnson, Independent Consultant and former Vice Provost International and Students at Simon Fraser University, and Andrew Ness, Dean International at Humber College. Thanks to the three of you, and thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. One podcast to start your day is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek. <laughs>